Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence. No. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On today's Unwind, I have the absolutely brilliant Dr. Michael Mosley, who is the best selling author, TV personality, science journalist, and a global thought leader in the fields of health. Dr. Michael has sold over 5 million copies of his number one international best-selling book, The Fast Diet. And you may have come across his other extremely popular books, The 8-Week Blood Sugar Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, The Fast 800, Fast 800 Keto, and Fast Asleep. Dr. Michael has a new book out, Just One Thing, and it's packed full of the easiest tips in the world that help to improve your health, happiness, and life satisfaction. Would you mind sharing a quote or a piece of writing that resonates with you? Yeah, um, there is an old Irish proverb, which I remember hearing somewhere, a good laugh and a long sleep are the best cures to anyone's problems. So I think if you can combine those um, with a loving relationship, then you're well on your way. Oh, I love that. Do you remember when you first came across that? I think about sort of 20 years ago, and uh, it sort of stuck with me because I've since then looked at quite a lot of research showing all the sort of different things you can do to improve your sort of health and well-being. But probably the most striking was this longitudinal study, which was done where they followed a group of people from the 1930s onwards until they all died. And they were looking to see what sort of factors were truly important in uh, determining their mental and physical health over that time. And it was the relationships they had, the laughs they had, the friends they had, the loved ones they had. That was the most important thing over and above anything else. I've been trying to nourish my friends ever since. Oh, so lovely. And you did mention, along with a good laugh and good sleep, a loving relationship. And you're married and you've got four kids. Yep. So clearly you have a very successful relationship. So what would you say are perhaps the things that you've learned 
about relationships that you didn't think were so important maybe when you were choosing your partner, but actually now that you've had this beautifully happy marriage and loving marriage, you'd say, oh, actually, those are really important things. I think the really important thing is that, as I said, you have a laugh, you have a conversation, you enjoy each other's company. You're not bored with each other. You're constantly stimulated by each other, that uh, you just love sharing stuff with the other person. And one of the bits of advice that I was given as well is try to avoid um, saying always, you always do this, you always do that, because um, that doesn't really take you anywhere. So uh, I think those are a few things I've learned. I think my wife is incredibly tolerant of me because when I get obsessed by things, uh, when I'm writing, when I'm doing things like that, I've become quite withdrawn. I'm quite a solitary creature. And uh, I've um, been sort of training myself to pay attention when um, I'm needed. And my my default characteristic is to retire into my work. And I, I realize that's not necessarily a good thing. And that's something I've been working on for a long time now. Because I love working. I love exploring health. I love all the things I do. But uh, sometimes that excludes other people. That's really interesting, very self-reflective. And this leads me actually very nicely into my next question, which is what challenge has taught you the most about yourself? I think having children has been enormously challenging. I uh, We wanted children. I'm not sure we were expecting four, but that's been a delight. But children sort of create demands uh, both on you and on your relationship throughout life. When they're young, obviously, uh, they need lots of your attention. Uh, mine are now all in their 20s and 30s. And it's finding time for them. It's um, helping guide them. It's listening to them. It's treating them as sort of grown adults. All those things. I mean, and in the course of that, that's also been one of the great challenges. My relationship with my wife has had to change and <laughs> accommodate the fact that we have these four other uh, people in our lives and now um, increasingly four adults in our lives. And that's been very challenging. I mean, kind of on a physical basis. I think it was probably discovering I had type 2 diabetes 10 years ago um, and uh, responding to that by radically overhauling my diet, my exercise regime, all sorts of things. So purely from a sort of you know, a health perspective, it was the diabetes which changed so much. But from other perspectives, it was the kids, I think, in a good way. In a good way. The diabetes, not so much. Yeah. But it's actually interesting on you mentioning the diabetes being this discovery that created positive change in quite a lot of the literature you do find that you know with really quite life-threatening illnesses people have these fateful changes and turns in their life and when asked well would you want to take away the illness often they say no I would have I would still go through that illness even if it was terrible Interesting. I mean, I think in this case, it was because I was able to overcome it. It was a very bad moment when uh, my doctor rang me to tell me I had type 2 diabetes. I'd had a random blood test. I had no inkling this was going to happen. I was 55 at the time. And I knew what the likely outcome is mm. or was because my dad had had it at the same age and he went on to develop complications of diabetes, which led to his sort of early death at the age of 74. But I guess what was different was that 
I was able to make a documentary. I was able to research it. I made a program called Eat Fast, Live Longer, which was really about how to reverse diabetes um, through intermittent fasting. And that led me to writing The Fast Diet with author Mimi Spencer, which in turn really turned me into um, something of a health guru or at least a health writer. And since then, I've written a lot of books. But that was you know, what precipitated it. It really did make me evaluate what I was doing and look for solutions, health solutions. And I suspect if I hadn't had the blood test, if I hadn't known, it would have come and hit me on the head further down the line, possibly at a point when I couldn't have done anything about it. Yeah, that utterly, utterly changed my life. And this obviously leads us into talking about your latest book. It feels slightly different from the other books that you've written, mainly because it doesn't have the word fast in the title. Um, <laughs> and, but why did you decide just one thing was going to be your next book and the whole concept of it? Well, as you say, I'd written quite a few books with the word fast in it, and that was sort of deliberate, the fast diet, fast to sleep, fast exercise. And they're all a play on words. But in this case, I was looking at something different. The idea of just one thing, it sort of promises something perhaps a little bit easier than some of the things that I've advocated in the other books, which, you know, losing weight is tough. Converting yourself to a more rigorous exercise regime is tough. But the idea of just one thing is that you can do just one thing. You can try and incorporate it into your life. Uh, it's relatively easy. If you do it, it could lead to substantial benefits for your health, both mental and physical. So why not give it a go? So I think the premise is kind of, ooh, yeah, perhaps I can do that. It became a podcast series initially for Radio 4 and for BBC Sounds. And then I wrote a book based on it because it became so popular as a podcast. People kind of wanted to know a bit more. And uh, yeah, it was again, it started in lockdown and I wasn't able to make as much television for obvious reasons. So when I was approached to do my first podcast, I thought, yeah, why not give it a go? I mean, as you've demonstrated, podcasts can be incredibly powerful. You grow an audience. There's an audience who have an appetite. They want to listen to more. They want to learn more. And there's a way of reaching people with podcasts, which, um, you know, previously television does it quite well. Books do it quite well, but podcasts do it in a different way entirely. Absolutely. And you open the book talking about 10 rules that help someone change a habit or 10 rules that actually help you to incorporate these just one things. What do you think are the most important rules to change habits? Changing any habit is difficult because we are creatures of habit. And, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions come along. We say we're going to run a marathon or we're going to lose three stone or something like that. And um, then obviously we don't because <laughs> that's really very challenging. I think uh, certainly the rules of just one thing are, first of all, really make it simple. Because if you make it very complicated, you're less likely to stick to it. The other one, create a trigger. And this is quite an interesting thing. So you have to kind of remind yourself to do something if you're not used to it. So, for example, uh, one of the things I and my wife Claire do is we do resistance exercises every morning. We do press-ups and squats and things like that. But we do it first thing because we use getting out of bed as a trigger, basically to say, right, you've got to get out of bed. And when you get out of bed, you pull the curtains, you turn on the radio, and then you do the resistance exercises. And I know if I don't do them then, I'm never going to do them because I really don't have time to go down to the gym 
And I might go, oh, I'll do them sometime in the afternoon, but I almost certainly won't. And another thing which I write about in the book is the benefits of improving your balance. And in that case, I do it while I'm brushing my teeth. Because you have to kind of brush your teeth for two minutes. So why not use that as an excuse to stand on one leg? And I started off being able to do about 30 seconds each time. Now I can do a comfortable minute on each leg. And so attach, if you like, a new habit to something you are already doing. And uh, I think the third rule is try to stick to it for at least a month. And if you do that, there's a greater chance it'll get incorporated. Why is that? Um, essentially because it takes a while to ingrain a habit. A lot of time people start off and they give up within a couple of weeks. So with something like New Year's resolutions, typically they start on something like the 1st or 2nd of January. And by the 14th of January, most people have given up their resolution. So if you can manage a month, then that at least is uh, demonstrates something. It also perhaps suggests if you're sticky it, you're getting benefit from it. Whereas if you're not doing it and possibly not enjoying it, uh, then that means dump it. So in the Just One Thing book, I have 30 Just One Things. I do not suggest you do them all at once. Uh, but what I suggest is you browse through the list and sort of pick a few you fancy, give them a go. If they seem to be working for you, incorporate them into your life and then perhaps pick up another one and give that a go. And maybe it's something you'll enjoy. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you can stick with it. Maybe you can't. But do try and persist with it for at least a month. One of the rules I thought was interesting is it's better to replace habits rather than cancelling them. Why is this? Essentially, it is incredibly hard to get rid of a bad habit. In many ways, it's sort of ingrained on your brain. The neural pathways have already been created. So it's quite difficult to give up a bad habit. So, for example, if one of your habits is uh, going along down to the shop at 4 p.m. and buying a donut or perhaps giving yourself a cake or something like that at 4 p.m., then that is going to be really, really hard to break because come 4 p.m., your stomach and your brain are going to shout, where's that cake? Give it to me. So you have to try and displace it with something else. And that could be going for a walk. It could be contacting a friend. It could be some other form of oral gratification, which might be, you know, having a handful of nuts because nuts are super healthy. But it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to exert my willpower. I'm just not going to eat that cake because at some point you are likely to crack. So that's why it's important to find something else which is going to sort of supersede the thing that you're trying to give up. Cigarettes, for example, I've never been a smoker, very hard to give up. Um, and one of the things that was very successful was vaping. But obviously now vaping turns out to be a habit, um, particularly in the young, which is not a great idea. But at least initially it gave you that sort of oral gratification. You know, it was like smoking, but it was kind of healthier. And so that's kind of a classic example of a bad habit being replaced by a not great habit, but a slightly better habit. But yeah, try and replace the bad one with a good one. The other rule that really stood out for me was when you recommend people to really clarify the reason why you're doing something. I imagine actually it's not as simple as it as sounds to really know why we want to change our habits. Would you agree? Absolutely. And in some cases, it can be quite vague, which is why you want to clarify it. What I sometimes suggest to people, particularly when I'm uh, talking about weight loss, because I have this program called the Fast 800. And what I say there is when it comes to things like weight loss, you really have to know why you're doing it, because otherwise, when the challenge comes on, when it gets tough, you're going to give up. 
So in my case, the reason I lost the weight and I've kept it off is because I realized I had type 2 diabetes and this was going to get mm. much worse unless I did something about it. So I regularly measure my uh, blood sugars. I've got a kit at home. I stand on the scales. Not always popular, but it shows you what's happening. And I wear a tight belt. So I know when I'm putting on weight. Uh, you need some sort of feedback. And so I know the reasons why I'm trying to maintain a healthy weight. With something like, for example, exercise, it could be that you want to remain mobile, that you know that as you get older, you're going to become less you know, fit. You're going to develop back pain and things like that. And that's kind of why you want to do press-ups and squats. Because the reason you want to do press-ups and squats is not just because it's good for your muscles, but it's also really good for your back. And that will prevent you getting back pain. It's also really good for your brain. And I go in the book into the science behind that, because there's something about when you're doing this sort of squat up and down or the press up, up and down, you get this sort of blood flow to the brain, which leads to the release of the hormone called BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. So if you think to yourself, eh, do I really want to do those squats and press ups? If you think to yourself, hmm, it's going to be good for my brain, it's going to prevent uh, me getting back pain, and it's also going to make me look good because my torso is going to be fab, uh, then that might give you a good reason to persist with it, even when you're thinking, eh, you know, I'm feeling a bit creaky. I don't really fancy it. In these intelligent exercises, which you've kind of briefly spoken about just now, these resistance exercises, the press-ups, the squats, you say that at the age of 50, men should be able to do 20 and women should be able to do 10. Would you encourage people to kind of really follow those sorts of metrics? Yes, I think it's quite useful to have metrics. I mean, clearly, you may not be able to do that now, or you may be somebody who can do an awful lot more than that. But having a sort of goal like that, being able to measure yourself against other people is a kind of good way of doing it. There are other metrics. For example, there is something which is called your aerobic fitness, which you can measure all sorts of different ways. That requires equipment. This doesn't. Can you do press-ups? Can you do proper press-ups? And that means not necessarily on your knees, uh, but can you go for it? If you can do 20, then you're doing well. But if you're doing 20, why not 30? I do sort of 30 to 40 every day, but, and I'm 66. So you can build up to it. Do you like metrics? Do you like the 10,000 steps? Do you like the eight hours? Do you like the numbers? Uh, the three glasses of water a day? I like those things. Perhaps other people don't, but what it does is it makes you accountable. So you can endlessly fool yourself that you're fit and healthy, that you look gorgeous in the mirror, uh, that you're just, you feel just like you did when you were 20 years old. But unless you have some measure which you can actually look at, then uh, I do like hard numbers. So as I said, blood pressure is another one. I have a home kit. I would advise anyone over the age of 40 to have a home kit, measure blood pressure. Uh, it's a silent killer. Uh, about one in three British adults or hypertensive, they don't know it. And it's extremely unlikely they'll go to a GP and have it measured. Uh, two close friends of mine have died from hypertension um, in their 50s and early 60s. If they had been measuring their blood pressure, they would have known. So there, these kits exist, the technology exists. And so why not make the most of it? Everyone is talking about cold plungers and cold showers at the moment. I feel if like if you go on social media, you will see somebody getting in some sort of ice bath. But I feel that actually we rarely truly understand why these have become so trendy. 
do you think it's a fad or do you think that actually this is something that should stay in people's routines for a long time? Yeah, so it is one of the just one things is a cold shower. I don't um, personally like a, a plunge into ice cold water, although I am swimming at the moment. I kind of start swimming in the English Sea on the 1st of June. I know people who swim the whole year round. I mean, and that, you know, they just don't stop. That come September, October, November, they still keep going. I did explore this with an expert, and I also recently made a series on healthy aging, which involved uh, filming with Wim Hof. Iceman. The Iceman, one of the gurus of it, and he invited me to join him in his pool where the ice was sort of floating on the surface. And I did, and it was really, really horrible. Uh, but uh, uh, the science behind it is still early days. So the thing I do, because I think this is manageable, is you get in the warm shower, do it now because the water is actually quite warm. Even cold water is quite warm and the air temperature is quite warm. So you can kind of, it's not so brutal as if you try it in the middle of winter. Get in the uh, warm shower, wash yourself um, and then turn it to full cold and see if you can stay there for about 40 seconds. I sing loudly a couple of verses of a song that I know will give me 40 seconds. And that gives me the benefits of singing, which is another just one thing, plus the cold water. And probably at the moment, the best evidence lies around the impact on the immune system. There have been studies which suggest cold showers do indeed kind of protect you against having flu in winter. And there is some evidence, mainly anecdotal, about the impact on uh, mood and things like that. Uh, mainly, I guess it just kind of really wakes me up and gets me going in the morning. And um, I do it because my wife is doing it. So I kind of feel like, you know, I've got to man up to this one. But uh, uh, it's not, you know, as I said, I wouldn't absolutely say you have to do it, but it certainly made swimming in the sea a lot easier. I also am hesitant with the cold shower. Well, maybe the cold shower, as you said, it's not ice, so it's so much easier. But is there anyone that should be careful about the ice plungers? Oh, absolutely. If you're not used to it, then don't do it. You know, you have to build up to it because you start to hyperventilate. If you have any problems with your heart, then that could be bad. Do not go swimming by yourself, particularly when it's cold, because um, bad things can happen. And indeed, a couple of years ago, I was swimming. It was towards the end of May off the coast of Cornwall, which was quite cold at the time of year. Last thing I remember is I was trying to swim back to the beach. And then the next thing I know, I'm in casualty. And my wife, Claire, wow. who was swimming with me, found me on the beach. And she said uh, I had no idea who I was or where I was. And she thought I'd had a stroke. She took me into casualty. Turns out I'd had something called transient global amnesia, which was triggered by the cold water. Wow. And uh, all my memories were wiped for about three hours. They all came back again. But obviously, that would be a very, very bad thing to happen if you happen to be swimming by yourself. So not common, but not incredibly uncommon. So if you're going to do it, uh, do it in a group team uh, with at least one other person. Uh, and do not just uh, fill <laughs> a bath with ice and plunge into it. Uh, things could end badly. So ease your way into it. You're absolutely right. On the note of singing, I couldn't believe that some studies found that singing can actually help with postnatal depression. Why do you think that is? I think a combination of things that singing is something, you know, our species has done for a long, long time. Anyone who sings knows that particularly if you're singing in a group, it's a very bonding experience, even if you sing badly. I sing badly, but <laughs> most of the research, frankly, has been done in choirs 
but I did a study or I was involved in a study a while back where we were measuring something called endocannabinoids. These are cannabis-like substances which are produced by the body and which seem to give you that high. People used to talk about endorphins. Now they're looking more at these cannabis-like substances. So what we did is we got a group of people, and I was one of them, and we did three things. We got an exercise bike and pedal like crazy. Uh, we sang together uh, for about half an hour, or we had to read an instruction manual for a washing machine, um, which was a control group. And they measured our endocannabinoid levels before and afterwards. And although they went up a bit when we were cycling, they went up a lot when we were singing together. So it seems to be that singing promotes the release of these substances, these endocannabinoids, and those seem to bolster mood. Plus, of course, you know, if you're doing it in a choir, if you're doing it in a group of people, uh, then you get all that sort of friendship and all the things we kind of talked about at the beginning. But even just singing by yourself can lead to release of these substances. So um, if you are, you know, suffering from postnatal depression, then that's kind of possibly why that is helpful, along with the experience instead of uh, joining a group and feeling supported. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Another of your Just One Things is dancing. And you say that everybody is a natural dancer. And I love that because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who think they can't dance. To be fair, it was the expert who told me, uh, that I interviewed, who told me that um, everyone was a natural dancer. Like you, I have some scepticism because I don't feel that I'm a natural dancer, but that could just be inhibition. It doesn't stop me doing it. It's just I see other people doing it and I think, wow, Strictly is not for me. You know, I cannot imagine ever, <laughs> ever going on that show and being anything other than the sort of the John Sargent, you know, the one who performs abysmally. So uh, I think some people are more natural dancers than others, but I think the need to dance, the urge to dance, the benefits of dancing go back thousands of years. You know, I imagine, I can well believe that our remote ancestors living on the plains of Africa, I can really imagine that they danced. And all cultures have embraced dancing and uh, have seen power and beauty and majesty in dancing. 
And it is one of those things which, again, you get the release of endocannabinoids, but you also get the release of other things. And it combines movement and coordination. So if you're dancing with other people, you've got to kind of coordinate yourself to them. And it's mentally challenging, particularly if you're a bad dancer like me. So um, I and my wife, Claire, did some salsa. And, uh, you know, I was terrible. But I was not as terrible as my wife thought I was going to be. And I got better, but I did have to. It was tough. I felt physically and mentally knackered by the end of the process. But I did thoroughly enjoy it, and I do want to go back to it. Even if you just dance around the kitchen while listening to music, that seems to be a really good thing to do. So put some dance into your life. I love that tip. I am someone who is similar to you, very probably low on the danceability skills, but really likes a dance in the kitchen. And the other thing that I was delighted to see in your Just One Thing uh, recommendations is a morning walk, because this has been totally game changing in my own life. But what's the science to suggest morning walks are very helpful? Okay, so multiple things. I mean, one of the things is that when you go out in the morning, you're exposed to early morning light. Mm. And light in the morning helps to reset your internal clock. We are driven by our circadian rhythm. And uh, what you probably don't appreciate, unless you've got a light meter in your hand, is that the light outside is probably about 100 times more than the light indoors. We spend way too much time indoors, particularly in winter. So when you go out there in the bright early morning light, which is kind of, you know, in the reddish spectrum, uh, then that helps to reset your clock, which means that other things such as, you know, your sleep pattern will improve the other end of the day. Plus, of course, um, you're getting out there when uh, your blood sugar levels are a bit lower. So that helps to uh, ensure that you switch over into fat burning. If you can go out into the woods, trees, I'm a big fan of spending time in nature. Again, going out with dogs is very good. If you haven't got a dog, maybe you can borrow one from the neighbor. But dogs are very good for your mental health. And there's something about being in trees. We know that trees produce all sorts of uh, chemicals, which seem to be good for us. Plus, there's that sort of mindful moment when you're wandering around in green stuff. So there is lots and lots of benefits to going for a walk. Plus, of course, the benefits of going for a walk, getting your heart rate up. And to really maximize the benefits, try and do it a bit briskly. So that means about 100 beats a minute. So you can either do it kind of with a headphones on and a, a beat which keeps your 100 paces a minute, keeps you going, or perhaps a more mindful stroll where you stop occasionally and just admire the sun filtering through the trees or something like that. So a combination of all those things. And that also sets you up for breakfast. You'll have burnt off a few calories. You'll have switched over a bit into fat burning mode. You will have delayed drinking coffee. Because another the things I point out in the book is that it's beneficial not to drink your coffee first thing. Try and delay it for about an hour from when you wake up. That's much better for you than knocking back caffeine first thing. Why is that? Seems to be because when you wake up, the first thing that happens is your cortisol, the thing's called the car response, the cortisol arousal response. Your body's already producing the stress hormone cortisol in order to get you out of bed. That not all stress is a bad thing. You need some stress in your day to kind of get you going. So you get this big surge, which begins about an hour before you wake and begins to peak as you get out of bed and then it goes up. And then within about half an hour, 40 minutes of waking, it starts to drop. So if you pour caffeine straight onto that, that's just going to make you more jittery, more nervous, mm -hmm. and it's just going to pump up the stress. Whereas if you wait until it's going down and hit it 
your body with a bit of caffeine, then that gives you a little bit of a perk, a little bit of an uplift. So um, if you can delay the caffeine to when you're having breakfast, studies have shown this is beneficial for stress, but also it means your blood sugars don't surge as they do when you drink caffeine before breakfast. To go back to your points on how beneficial it is to be in nature, I found it fascinating that studies found that um, when we did spend time in nature, the amount of killer cells increased in our system. And I'd love to kind of have your explanation of what is killer cells? Why would that be a helpful thing for our killer cells to be increased? And why on earth you think that possibly we've evolved for that to be an impact? The idea of killer cells, neutrophils, essentially these are white cells that help kill bacteria, viruses, invaders. So having a sort of decent level of natural killer cells circulating around in your body is a good thing, because it means that they're sort of ready and poised to take on um, anything nasty that may have slipped by your other defenses. And this is based on a Japanese study, but also it's been replicated in other places where they looked at people who either spent time in green spaces or spent an equal amount of time walking through a city center or something like that. And what they found is that the people who'd gone for the walk in green spaces, uh, they had higher levels of these natural killer cells. And they think it is because trees produce a variety of substances to protect themselves against attack from fungi, from bacteria, and things like that. And they think that the substances which you inhale, and that's part of the, you know, when you've got that lovely piney smell or whatever it might be, that lovely tree smell, uh, they think that that is something that you are utilizing yourself, helping to boost our immune system, as well as protecting the tree against fungal attack. It seems to be doing good things for our immune system. And again, it could well be linked to the fact that our remote ancestors evolved, obviously, in Africa in a tree-like environment. And it could be that's kind of where we gain those abilities from. So yeah, there seems to be some decent evidence showing the benefits uh, of spending time surrounded by lovely greenery and in particularly trees. Have you ever come across the study that looked at patients in different hospital rooms and those that had a view of nature healed quicker. Absolutely. Is that true? Absolutely fascinating. Completely true. And uh, it was a randomized controlled trial. They either gave them a view or they didn't give them a view. And as you say, it was a group who, after the operation, and they were looking at how quickly they recovered, uh, which ones developed post-operational infections and things like that. And the people who had the view they recovered faster, which is kind of mind-boggling. So uh, it's a shame that uh, not everyone in a hospital gets a view. But I love those sort of studies because at some level, it's kind of quite a simple way you'd imagine uh, to help you know, people. And maybe, I don't know if anyone's done a study whether you get similar benefits if you've got a television screen with a view of somewhere lush and gorgeous. I suspect it wouldn't work quite as well, but maybe it would work a bit. The famous saying, um, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, was something I grew up being told. And so I found it delightful to see that eating an apple was one of your suggested hacks. Why is that? One of the takeaways from this particular item was it's really important uh, to eat the skin. It's sort of crazy because all the nutrients are in the skin, and that's true for most um, fruits and vegetables. So... 
peeling potatoes, for example, which I remember as a youth having to spend hours peeling potatoes, particularly at Christmas, is uh, almost entirely, you know, a waste of time. And, is, you know, with modern potatoes, you just give them a bit of a scrub. As I said, almost all the nutrition, the fiber, uh, the vitamins, the nutrients are in the skin. Wow. The, the body of the potato is just pure starch. So why would you want to get rid of all the good stuff, let alone spend hours doing it? And uh, the same is true for apples and indeed um, most fruit. I mean, you're not going to eat the uh, peel of an orange, but uh, most other fruits. I, I know people who eat the skin of mangoes. Um, not my thing, but if you've got a nice sort of mango, pears, I eat the whole thing um, apart from the stalk. But yeah, um, the benefits of apples come from the flavonoids and the other ingredients, but they are mainly in the skin. So um, don't peel it, whatever you do. And there is some very good evidence around health benefits of apples and other fruit. So uh, it's all part of kind of five a day. Uh, but do try and vary the sort of fruit and vegetables you eat. I mean, one of the sort of mantras is try and eat 30 different plants a week, which is obviously quite challenging. But an expert I spoke to in one of the programs um, said that was kind of one of the best things you can do. Try and vary it. So not just apples, pears, bananas, whatever it might be. And when it comes to veg, as many brightly colored veg as you possibly can get, because each of them, those colors all represent different beneficial chemicals. And a bit like the trees, the plants produce these chemicals to fight off infections, fight off fungi and things like that. But it turns out that um, they're pretty good for us. And then the other vegetable you mentioned, which is also another huge fave, and I actually had them for lunch today, is beetroot. I feel like beetroot is a really unsung hero. No one talks about beetroot. And there it was in your new book. You're a big fan of beetroot. Why is that? I am. And um, interestingly, when we did a podcast on it, I heard afterwards that sales of beetroot absolutely <laughs> soared. Um, so I've been sort of looking at the science of beetroot for a little while now. A while ago, I took part in an experiment where we were looking at the impact of beetroot on your blood pressure. Now, the reason that beetroot seems to be beneficial is because it contains nitrates. Now, some people used to say, oh, nitrates are very bad for you. But when it comes in the form of beetroot, it seems to be good for you because it gets converted by bacteria in your mouth into something called nitric oxide. And that goes into your blood and that causes vasodilation. It basically means your blood vessels expand. And so one of the effects of eating beetroot and drinking beetroot shots is it um, lowers your blood pressure. And the effects are fairly rapid. So that's kind of good if you've got higher blood pressure. But it's also been used as a sort of performance enhancer because they've done a number of studies on athletes, cyclists. Um, a lot of this research has been done at the University of Exeter. And they found that um, people knocking back the beetroot shots, um, it actually enhanced their athletic performance. Again, probably because uh, it leads to expansion of the blood vessels. And that in turn means more blood getting to your muscles and keeping you going. Interestingly, the Romans thought that beetroot was an aphrodisiac and its mode of action is very similar to Viagra in that Viagra also works uh, by uh, leading to release of nitric oxide. So who knows? A selling point. <laughs> but uh, the thing about beetroot is uh, it's best if you kind of bake it. Uh, if you boil it, then uh, the danger there is you're going to leach out quite a lot of the nutrients. 
So baked beetroot is a good thing to have. Um, I like raw beetroot sliced up in a, you know some salad, but mm. um, lightly microwaved or, as I said, had as a sort of beetroot juice, beetroot shots. Um, all of those seem to be kind of good ways of incorporating more beetroot into your life. I also use beetroot um, as I do homemade sauerkraut. Because sauerkraut, fermented food, absolutely brilliant really easy to make you just really cheap to make and you just need some cabbage some onion some grated beetroot some salt and a few spices and whatever you fancy and you cram them all in to a jar and then um, a little bit of distilled water wait for a week and they bubble away and then you've got sauerkraut and it is such fun to make and I'm a huge fan of fermented foods. Again, it's another just one thing that I do recommend people try and, you know, have a portion of fermented foods every day. My wife, Dr. Claire Bailey, who you can find on Instagram, she makes a delicious beetroot cake. Ooh. So you have to grate the beetroot into the cake. And um, she has other beetroot related um, recipes. So if you want a bit of inspiration on how to, you know, bring a bit more beetroot into your life, a bit more color into your life, then do check out um, Dr. Claire Bailey on Instagram. Another thing that I'm obsessed with, and especially when it comes to a sleep routine, and you write about the benefits in your book, is hot baths. Why are baths so important? So there are lots of um, benefits for the hot bath in terms of sleep, but also there are other benefits in terms of your general health. And those are linked to research done particularly in saunas. Um, and indeed, in one um, slightly bizarre experiment a while ago, <laughs> uh, they looked at uh, what happened to my rectal temperature or my core temperature using a rectal thermometer um, while in a hot bath. And we were looking at the Im impact on vasodilation of the blood vessels, a bit like the beetroot stories. It, having being in a warm space, uh, whether it is hot water or a sauna, leads your blood vessels to expand, which kind of brings your blood pressure down. And so that's some of the good stuff. So there's in, interestingly, contradiction, cold can be good for you, but heat can also be good for you. But in terms of the reason why you might want to do it in the link to sleep is because if you have a nice hot bath with, you know, your lavender oil and your yellow ducky floaty in it, whatever it might be, you're listening to some nice music. It's a really good wind down routine, which is, you know, if you're stressed and that sort of thing. And if you find it difficult to go to sleep, that is helpful. But the key thing is to try and do it about an hour before bed. Because what happens is when you get out of the warm bath or indeed the sort of hot shower, what happens is you start to cool because obviously, you know, the temperature in your room, your bathroom, wherever your bedroom is lower. The initial hot water causes your vessels to dilate and then they constrict. And what happens is that your core temperature drops. So that is a good thing because that triggers sleep. And that was kind of slightly the purpose of this other experiment I was describing. Uh, what actually happens to your core temperature? Uh, and uh, one of the best ways to measure that is with a rectal thermometer. So you have to be kind of keen on it. Uh, but um, yeah, one of the big triggers for sleep is this drop in core temperature and having a nice relaxing hot bath about an hour before you go to bed uh, does that seems to be some similar benefits from wearing, and particularly in winter, wearing uh, warm socks. That seems to kind of uh, divert the blood flow away again there. But yeah, it's the drop in core temperature, which, as I said, is a trigger for sleep. And why, for example, it's not a good idea to do some sort of vigorous workout shortly before going to bed, because that will just raise your core temperature. And uh, if you do find it difficult um, falling off to sleep, that's a good thing. 
My last question is, um, whose advice has had the most profound impact on you? It would be the guy called Mark Matson, Professor Mark Matson at the National Institutes on Aging. Because back in 2012, when I discovered I had type 2 diabetes, I was told by all the medics that uh, it's an incurable disease, just need to start on medication. I contacted him and he said, no, um, I think if you do intermittent fasting, that could do it for you. Went out, filmed with him. His big area is neuroscience. So his particular interest is dementia and his dad died of it. So he's the one who introduced me to intermittent fasting. It was because of him I came up with the 5-2 diet. And it's because of him I'm hoping that I've not only reduced my risk of heart disease and cancer, but also of dementia. So yeah, Mark Matson, he's my hero. Oh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much wisdom and education with us. There are plenty more tips in the book and every just one thing has expanded into the easy ways that you can implement them in your life. It's not daunting because I think some of these books can feel a bit daunting when, as you said, suggesting so many changes and then you do nothing. And this is quite the opposite. So thank you. Thank you very much. I was rattling through it. But um, as you say, if you Dig out the book. You don't have to do anything. Take a page at a time. Have a little canter through it. See what grabs your eye and give it a go. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.